welcome to the Nutrition Lab. James Ellis here dissecting all things good to eat and drink. Now I'm really excited today because we've got a very special guest for episode one. Spring is in the air, the sun's out and it's the time of rebirth and that means our fields are full of wild things that are good to eat and drink. Unfortunately I don't know what's going to feed me or what's going to kill me so I've called upon the services of one of Yorkshire's best foragers for our first guest. It's Craig Worrell of Edible Leeds. Now Craig holds wild food and foraging courses around the county so if there's one person who knows what he's talking about it's definitely him. So Craig welcome to the show. Hi James, thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming on. I wonder if, just for the benefit of people who are listening in, if you could just tell them a little bit about your background. How did you get into foraging and uh, what it is that you do with Edible Leads? What kind of things do you offer people? Okay, so my, my background, I've, I've got a quite, a, I suppose, a colourful and varied background, but the kind of the catalyst really for getting me into wild foods is when I was working in education. So I was running a project, uh, an environmental wildlife horticultural project with uh, a chap who's a very good friend of mine now. He was working for Leeds City Council. Um, so some funding had fallen through at the school that I was working at and children had been um, informed and promised that they were going to be going out to do something pretty cool. Um, and the, the, the teacher at the time was not going to pursue any alternatives and I felt that was not a very good thing to do to these kids in particular because of who they were so I took up on myself to inquire and eventually I got put in touch with a guy called Dan Malster I think he's one of the senior rangers at Leeds City Council Parks and Countryside Ranger Service at the moment and we we developed a, a program to take the, the pupils out and what we would do we would do a, a six-week block of one day a week taking a certain group of kids out, doing woodland activities, um, you know, outdoor things. So we, we did um, woodland management. Um, what else did we do? Oh, blimey, we did lots of things. Um, wildlife gardens, building bird and bat boxes. And at the end of the six weeks, as a thank you to the kids for all their hard work, we would put on a, a, a fun day in the woods. And the first fun day that we did, which was in spring, um, involved tracks and trails treasure hunts. We uh, did, all went off into two groups and built some dens. And we then had to try and sneak up on each other's dens without being spotted. And Dan, who was very much into wild foods at the time, um, decided to do a little wild food walk as well. Now, I was already focusing a lot on um, edible and medicinal mushrooms at the time, kind of teaching myself about those. So plants were kind of secondary at that phase. And to be honest with you, the walk just blew me away. It blew the kids away and it blew me away. It was just like, wow, so much in such a short space. And it kind of took off from there, really. So, um, yes, I stayed in that form of education for, a, I think, another year or two. And then the school changed its format. So it went from what it was to a, an academy. Um, unfortunately, my face didn't fit in the academy, nor my philosophy and ethics. So they stopped all this positive work I was doing with the children take them outdoors and educate them um, and yeah I found myself with a lot of spare time on my hands so I decided that I wanted to get to know more about nature and maybe I could do some wild food walks so I spent two and a half yeah about, about two and a half years three years the next two and a half to three years pretty much every day going out throughout the seasons armed with a plethora of wild plant and tree identification books yeah. and wild food books and was just trying to just trying to locate where things grew. Um, 
you know, what were they? How could I identify these and how could I safely identify them so that I could then help others safely identify them? And yeah, it's kind of snowballed from there, really. It's just it's a, bit, it's a bit bonkers, really. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, were you a foodie at heart before this? Yeah, hmm, foodie. Um, I enjoyed food. Um, I knew that food was essential and I suppose I was quite fussy with food. I mean, I was, I was very much also in my early stages, very much into the Hugh the Wittenstall yeah. um, and the River Cottage series. Um, loved that whole thing of um, growing your own vegetables. But I used to do that as a kid with my dad. We had an allotment, so I grew up on on, on good quality, healthy vegetables um, and other good food sources. So I've, I've always kind of had that in me. Um, and wild foods just opened my mind up to a, a whole new world of flavors, textures, diversity, cycles, seasons. Um, so yeah, yeah. I suppose I was. I wasn't. I wouldn't class myself as a as a foodie, like some people do. Hey man, I'm a foodie. But um, yeah, yeah I, I liked food. Um, yeah, it's exciting, and we, we should all get good food in us. We need good food, you know. Yeah. Good food is a what's that old adage or quote? Um, Let food be thy medicine, and medicine be be thy food. I didn't yeah. believe. So yeah. And so, I guess you, you mentioned four seasons there, but we're in spring at the moment. Yes. This must be like you know, like wildfire for you. There must be everything going and growing given the time of the year. Is, is this like the best time to, to be into foraging? Um, Any time's a good time to be into foraging. Winter's obviously the hardest month. Um, obviously, we, we, our winters seem to be much milder than what they used to be at one point of time. So, you know, less snow, less ground frost, less um, kind of opens it up. But again, it's still slim picking. So... Spring's just a fantastic time of the year. It's kind of a, I suppose, the season of rebirth and new beginnings. And I suppose if you, if you look back at, at humans, early humans, whether this is early days of farming um, or even going further back, you know, down to the, the hunter-gatherers, um, I imagine that if you, were, if you were staying in land in particular, I think there's a very good reason why hunter-gatherers decided to locate themselves particularly in the winter time just in land from from the coast you know, there's a lot of archaeological sites that have been found around the coast i think what, what struck it home for me i'm probably losing my thread a little bit there what, what really struck it home for me was the winter of 2012 2013 when it was cold and bitter and that was from mid-november through till mid-april and it really got me thinking about uh, modern food systems, even though I used to think about them anyway, it got me thinking about them in a very different format. And I, I thought back to early farmers in particular, and what if you'd had, what if you'd had, had a crop failing? Um, what if you weren't so much into the wild food aspects, but also what if you were, given the resources and the equipment they would have had then, you know, they didn't have fridges mm -hmm. and freezers, yeah. they didn't have things like kiln jars, um, you know, they, they didn't have preserving crops, I suppose, in a sense. But if you'd have spent a good six months eating foods that were predominantly uh, salted and brined and pickled, um, I imagine that by springtime you'd have been absolutely craving some serious <laughs> green nutrient. Your body would have been screaming out. Households must have been tearing each other's ears and hairs out. Yeah. And this is where spring's just really beautiful because a lot of the plants that come through in the springtime, they are packed with minerals and vitamins and they... They work synergistically as well with the season to bring our, our bodies and our minds. Um, it's a bit like an MOT. It's a bit like taking your car for having your, yeah. your car to make sure that the motor's running. And I find that the, 
the range of minerals and vitamins within in plants, they do that for us. You know, you have certain plants that help to clean out the lymphatic system. You have plants that help um, with, with the digestive tracts and get your, 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 your gastric juice and your bile's going. You have kidney cleanse outs. You have wild garlic, for instance, is, is really good for helping to thin the blood. Right. So obviously in the springtime, most people will feel this in the springtime round about the equinox. They get a bit of a, a spring in their heels. We feel yeah. a little bit more energetic. Well, throughout the winter, we've, I suppose we eat a lot of sort of stodgier foods, homely foods. We feel a lot slower. You know, we, we kind of like settle down, but our bodies are much slower. Our, our heart rate slows down. Our blood thickens up. I think this is all perhaps to do with trying to keep us as, as warmer. We're not using as much energy to, to pump the blood around the body. And then wild garlic kind of works really nicely to help thin the blood at the time when we need more energy. We want to be out in the early part of the daytime to, I don't know, pick us breakfast or prepare. I don't know, just, just to gather things really. So yeah, spring's, spring's really excellent. But, you know, there's, a, there's evolutions throughout the, the foraging seasons. You know, even wild garlic, it will start off with the, the tiniest of leaves and, and, and gradually over a period of, you know, a couple of months, it'll kind of grow and get much bigger and the flower heads will start to emerge and the flowers will form. The flowers will be pollinated. They will drop off. The seeds will form. And at that point in time, really when it's flowering, the green sections are usually pretty much past the best because they're, they're putting a lot of power into helping the, the, the plant flower and seed. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got these over, overlapping layers of plant evolution. It'll start with the greens and then you'll notice that certain flowers start to emerge and, and then other herbs start to, to kind of come along mid-spring season, petering out into the, into the summer seasons. And you know, then you've got the coast that you can take into account with seaweeds and in the autumn time, the mushrooms come in. We've got things in yeah. berry and nuts and seeds. And yeah, it's, quite, it's wonderful. Yeah. So when it comes to wild garlic then, because it's it's the one that everybody's talking about at the moment for some reason. I don't know whether it's a lockdown related thing or (laughs) everybody discovered wild garlic. Nobody knew what it was before. (laughs) So Loads of people are going out and gathering it, but is there, can you actually eat the flowers as well then? Oh yeah. Other than the leaves? Yeah. Every single part of wild garlic is edible. So Wild garlic is the ancestor to the garlic as we know it in the, in the shops, whether it's your farm shop, your supermarket, your local sort of greengrocers, and they're made with multiple cloves to make one garlic bulb. Well, wild garlic is the, the ancestor. I mean, basically all foods that are now on supermarket shelves that people kind of take for granted, I suppose, all came from a wild ancestor, mm-hmm. and a lot of those ancestral plants are still out there. Um, so with wild garlic, the bulb is edible, um, however, you know, you've got to start looking at the laws around foraging, you know, it's, it's illegal to uproot or cause long-term damage to a plant. Um, so, you know, permission from the landowner must be sought for that, but really the bulbs are nice, but they're a lot of work, they're a lot of fiddly work. And, and given that we've got so much good garlic out there and cloves of garlic, they're probably actually tastier than the bulbs of wild garlic, but then the, the leaves themselves, the flowering stems with the unopened flower heads, they're edible, the flowers are edible, and the seeds are edible. You just have to collect the seeds before the outer casing on the seed head develops a, a really tough centre to it. So if you want to pick those seeds for pickling them or throwing in, scattering into a salad or a, or a soup or another dish, 
and you just need to get them before you break your teeth on them basically when you buy into them <laughs> so yeah yeah it's a great plan it's it's so versatile it's it's there's a good reason why i think a lot of whether they're professional um, experienced foragers or whether they're kind of um, hobbyist foragers or whether even the, you know, the, the newbie foragers, it's a really simple, easy plant to tap into. It's got really superb identification features and, and it's so, so versatile. There's so many products that you can make with wild garlic. It's, it's fantastic raw, it's fantastic fermented, it's fantastic pickled, it's fantastic, well, what was it fantastic? Juice steam, you know, you can add it as a juice into another. Yeah, you probably don't do too much of it. You might get a, a hot garlic kick, and you know, people will naturally be social distancing from you after a shot of wild garlic <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's an amazing plant, absolutely fantastic. It's really lovely to see because obviously I'm on social media platforms, and there's a lot of people that I'm seeing tapping into wild garlic for the first time, and it's just yeah, it's really, it's really positive, it's really exciting. It's great, it's great to see. I saw you'd done some garlic butter on your, was it your Instagram feed? Yeah. That looked really tasty. Yeah, it is. It's really nice. So again, that's, um, so yeah, I was just taking some butter and putting it through the, the, the food processor. Yeah. Um, and then just shoving a load of wild garlic into it, blitzing it all up, taking it out, letting it kind of, kind of come together a bit it gets quite warm in the, in, in, in the blender. So just let it pop it in the fridge, let it, let it set a little bit more and then, you can get your hands in and then just form into little, um, dispense it up into little hundred gram sort of rounds like a sausage round. Yeah. Wrap it in some grief proof paper, string the ends up, stick it in the freezer, and I've got garlic butter that I can use throughout the year basically. So, what else is good at this time of year then? Because, like you said, wild garlic, <laughs> like they seem to be ubiquitous, but what other thing, what are you sort of like top three or four things that people should be looking for? Well, it's a good job of had some notes earlier, isn't it? Um, because <laughs> I think these, um, so for me, there, there's, there's, there's two plants in particular that I love, but there's also two plants in particular that I think everybody out there knows. If they haven't, um, I don't know where they've been for the majority of their lives. Um, so nettles, yeah, everybody's had an encounter with nettles, and usually when we're completely unaware we don't even know the name of this plant we're not even probably not really all that bothered because we're so lost in childhood innocence and wonder at the world but nettles i would definitely recommend people tap into nettles they are uh, not like the term superfoods as such but they are they are packed with minerals and vitamins and protein they're a they're an easy plant to identify they're particularly abundant and again there's a lot of different things that you can do with nettles um, and dandelion, I would, I would highly recommend people tap into dandelion. Again, I think everybody knows dandelions. Um, and then, well, I mean, what else is there? There's so much. I mean, cuckoo flowers kicking off at the moment. There's a, a, a wonderful invasive plant that's originated from Persia and has found itself located in the UK. Um, I did a little video on that one, and that's called Few Flowered Leek or Allium Paradoxum. Um, and that's kind of a cross between leek onion and garlic and again it's very versatile we've got sweet sicily kicking off we've got cow parsley out there alexanders are kind of coming to the back end of their life common hogweeds kicking off at the moment you know the, the bitter cresses are still available for picking we have a, a feral and wild rhubarb again a plant on, on, on the uk plant terrorist hit list bizarrely um, it's a plant that a lot of people have heard about um, but probably don't know enough information to realise that what they've heard in the past um, 
how can you put it, um, is in doubt. Um, but, but Japanese knotweed? Okay. Yeah. Um, so Japanese knotweed's around. I mean, what else have we got? Flipping heck. Um, Tell me a little bit about knotweed, uh, then, because I'm interested in this idea of a, a, a food terrorist hot list. Yeah. Eat, the, eat the invasives, as we say. Don't eradicate them. Um, so yeah, Japanese knotweed was brought over by the Victorians. I think a lot of our invasive plants these days were brought over by the Victorians. And Japanese knotweed just likes our climate and it's, it's settled itself in certain niches within habitats. Um, a lot of people would probably say that it's, it's bullied a lot of our native plants out, I suppose. Um, that's not necessarily how I view it. I think we've already done a lot of damage to certain landscapes, you know, particularly through certain practices through poor agriculture. Um, there's a lot of pollution from industry and commercial toxins. And again, a lot of these things wash away to our rivers. And I generally find Japanese knotweed around riversides. Right. And there's some really good studies into the roots and the, or the roots of the plant. And they, they, they like to clean up dirty soils. They will, they will pick up um, heavy metals and other particles and toxins. So in theory, I kind of see that they're kind of doing a bit of a cleansing job. Um, and a lot of people seem to think that it runs amok. And in my experiences, I've got one particularly huge patch over in Leeds. It is, it's phenomenal. And um, this is kind of like waste ground area. But what's really, really interesting is that it's not attempting to break through the paving slabs. It's not attempting to break through the tarmac and where, where it's close to the road. It's, it's kind of spread itself along this banking. And... Yeah, so it's not really running amok. I've got a friend down south, um, a friend of mine called Miles Irving, um, and he's taken a lot of Japanese knotweed in the past, and he's aware of certain patches that seem to have spread to a, supposed to a certain size, and then they've kind of just been quite happy to be at that size. You know, they haven't gone dominating other areas of, of, of woodland or the wasteland that they're on. So yeah, it's, um, it's a phenomenal plant. It really is. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, how, how, how would you recognise it if, you, if you'd not seen it before? So I'm out for a walk by the river, by, down by my house. How, how am I going to know if there's some knotweed there? It's a really good point. Um, uh, can I, I've got some just over in the corner of my room. Can I just go get it? Yeah, bring yeah. it over. I'll let you see it and I'll try and explain it to you. Yeah. So I, I'm assuming that you're just going to send this out audio? This yeah, just, well, exactly. Yeah, so it's hard for people yeah. to actually get <laughs> what, what we're talking about at times. But uh, Brilliant. Let's give it a go. Cool. I'll tell you what, I'll go, let's go grab a piece of knotweed and I'll... If you'll be able to see it, you're, you're, you're going to get a, a preview exclusive because obviously you can, you can now see this plant here. So I would say that when it's first coming up, it would resemble um, an asparagus stalk. Very, very similar to asparagus. Um, it grows rapidly. Um, and the key features of Japanese knotweed are that in between each section, it's sort of broken up into sections and the sections are divided by these knots here. There's a, a knot there and a knot there. And where these knots- it looks quite like asparagus, doesn't it? With the, with, yeah. the, with the knots in it. It does, yeah, very, very much so. So, so asparagus is, doesn't have knots as such. Well, in fact, asparagus doesn't have knots. Knotweed doesn't. Where the knots are is where you get the little, the new little flower, uh, sorry, not the flower, the, the leafing stems coming out from. And the colour of it, it's a, a patch of, a mix of colours. There's a, a really lovely green colour and this, it smells like a burgundy, kind of purpley burgundy flecking speckled marking up and down the stem of the plant. 
it, it looks remarkably like rhubarb. Um, if you've seen mature rhubarb and that kind of mix of sort of green and purpley yeah. burgundy that it gets, but they share the same family. They're both in the Polygonacea family. So they're basically just wild rhubarb, but it's wild rhubarb from um, Japan. And the Japanese and the Koreans and the Chinese have lived a very happily alongside Japanese knotweed for thousands of years and they continue to live happily alongside it and they don't see a place for eradicating it. So, I mean, this is probably a, probably needs to go into a deeper discussion with people over this. You know, I'm kind of being, I suppose, quite to the point in a sense, but there's more to examine um, in relation to our cultural attitudes around Japanese knotweed. I mean, people can go onto my website and they can access, um, I've got a, quite a lengthy article about Japanese knotweed and I've got a recipes page that is dedicated to it. I've been a bit slack with my website. I prefer to be outdoors. But today, in the last, what, four years that I've been playing with Japanese knotweed, I've made no less than 16 different products, wow. ranging from ketchups to jellies to ice creams to purees to pickles to fermenting it. It's, uh, yeah, syrups. It, it, it's, it's a really, truly wonderful plant. And I think there's easier ways of dealing with Japanese knotweed as well. So plants need to photosynthesize. Surely if we were to remove every single shooting stalk every season and prevent it from photosynthesizing, thus, in, yeah, thus preventing it from creating food through photosynthesis and storing it in its roots, eventually those roots will weaken and we can, we can kind of manage that stock of Japanese knotweed. We can decrease its size year upon year upon year. But again, we should be harvesting the roots. You know, the, the roots are really powerful. They're a powerful medicine. Um, particularly useful at combating Lyme's disease. Um, and UK medical herbalists at the moment are not allowed to get roots from the UK. They're importing them from other countries like Hungary, which just seems pretty bonkers when we've so got Despite the fact we've actually got lots of it in the country, we're importing the roots from elsewhere to use yeah. in remedies. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how rife Japanese knotweed is. I, I, you know, over in Leeds, I probably know in the West Yorkshire Brown, not, not that I get everywhere in Yorkshire, but I, I know of probably three or four patches of Japanese knotweed. Um, three patches previously have been um, dealt with by chemicals, unfortunately, which you know, kind of damages the soil organisms mm. um, and other things around it. And, and again, potentially puts the public at risk if they're picking this plant. You know, the last thing you want to be doing is, is consuming nasty chemicals that are pretty toxic to you. So I just think there's, there's different ways of dealing with this plant and it's, it's not the menace that people believe it to be and it's not got its eyes set on plant world domination. It's, um, <laughs> you know, it's just a plant doing what a plant does at the end of the day and we yeah. just need more understanding in relation to, to the wild world and, and, and to plants. Yeah. A lot of people perceive plants as inanimate objects, that they're, they're not conscious, they're not intelligent, they're not aware and... I think that we're way off the mark with that one. Plants are highly intelligent, highly adaptable. Um, yeah, we need to become more friendly with them. Yeah. <laughs> so what are the, uh, so, I mean, one of the things that I always find is that foraging is something that I'd like to get into, but I'm never quite sure about what I'm looking for. So what are the common mistakes you find that people get into when they, when, when they first go out and start looking for stuff? I mean, the last thing you want to do is pick up a poisonous mushroom, obviously. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's really funny because I've never really been a, a tech person. Being online and doing online chit chats with people, I much prefer social company. 
Um, I'm a bit of a misanthrope at times, I will admit. I like to, <laughs> I like to spend time on my own and get away from the, the craziness of human civilization. But I, I kind of did it the, whew, how can I put it? I, I went out and bought books, you know? I utilized these books and these resources and I, I, I took my time, um, in particular with certain plants. Some plants are just really, really simple to identify. Other ones are a bit trickier. Um, and I think some people, oh, I don't know, maybe, maybe they want instant gratification. They, 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 they maybe uh, they, they let their guard down. They're a bit, they're a bit bullish and got to learn it all, got to learn it all now. Um, I, I would recommend that people um, buy books. I would also recommend that people engage the services of, of professional foragers like myself um, and come out <laughs> of the club. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of what I do. Um, but yeah, yeah, books, going out with people and, and just taking your time, really. There's, there's, there's no rush. There are so many plants out there. A good place to start with foraging is uh, start at home, doorstep foraging. You know, maybe if you've got a garden, what's growing in your garden? I, I often see people spraying and pulling up uh, dandelions, um, trying to eradicate nettles in their garden. I just think, like, why? I mean, I know why they do that, because they don't mean to be an edible species, but... If we can tap people into these plants and actually make them realise that they're actually really beneficial for you and actually they're really beneficial for the wider, mm. um, the wider web of life. Um, so, you know, instead of spraying it or digging it up and chucking it, why not, why not eat it? Why not look into eating it? But again, it's, it's about spreading information and educating people um, about these weeds that they like to call them, that maybe we should eradicate the term weeds. It's quite negative in its connotations. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, books, but really coming back to your point, books is a really good way to go about it and choose, I don't know, depending on how much time you've got on your hands, choose, choose, choose two or three plants a week. Yeah. Already people know nettles. They can be playing around and cooking with nettles. They can mm. be playing around and cooking with, with dandelions. They, they know daisy, you know, daisies are edible. The leafy greens of daisies are edible. The flowers and the flower stalks are edible. I'm trying to think of other plants. Dock, another classic plant that's, you know, people to eradicate. Mm. The, the, the stems of young dock at this time of year, again, although they're smaller than rhubarb, you can treat them just the same as rhubarb, you know. So you can juice it. You can put it into a miniature crumble if you want to do. You can add it to your salads by chopping up the really succulent, juicy ends. And Yeah. yeah. Are they, and again, people, are, sorry, go on. Are there skills that we've lost over the years when it comes to foraging. So, for instance, I, was, I, was, I grew up in Greece and you go up to Greece and you, you walk up on a hillside or anywhere that's outdoors and you see lots of old ladies going around with a big plastic bag, picking up <laughs> things like dandelion leaves and stuff like that and just getting as many as they can. And they'll go home, they'll stew them, they'll turn them into teas, they'll turn them into remedies. And it seems very much still part of the culture there. And I imagine that maybe 100, 150 years ago, our forebears would have done that kind of thing. But we seem to have lost that skill, don't we? Over the yeah. yeah, unfortunately, yes, we have. I, I don't know quite when it became. I think agriculture's played a large part in that lost tradition, that lost knowledge. But again, there seems to be holes in, I suppose, historical books, or at least the books that I've read. That So I, I was recently meant to be doing a... Um, a, a four-day event somewhere up in um, up in Northumberland for four days, and they were doing an Anglo-Saxon theme. And they said, "Look, can you can you kind of fit in with the Anglo-Saxon theme?" And I said, "Yeah, it shouldn't be a problem." And I've really, really struggled to find 
recipes going back to the Anglo-Saxon times um, and even books and information in books relating to wild plants. A lot of it is information related to agriculture. Now, I know that we had agriculture. I'm certainly not saying that we, we should all go back to a, a wild food foraging lifestyle like the hunter-gatherers, but, but surely they were, they were tapping into wild food sources at that time. I mean, my grandma, for instance, she, um, I remember taking some wild garlic around to her some years ago and popped into a house and she went, oh, brilliant, wild garlic. I'm like, how, how do you know? And she went, well, we used to pick it as kids. And then I took her some pig nuts another week and she went, oh, brilliant, pig nuts. And I'm like, why have you, why, grandma, why did you never tell me this? <laughs> like, yeah. Why did you never take me picking um, pig nuts? So I, I, I don't know, agriculture has played a part in that. Um, and maybe, whew, I yeah, that's a tricky one actually. I, I, I can't fully pinpoint when, when it changed. Obviously that knowledge has never left us fully yeah. because people have been foraging. Um, but probably more in the countryside and maybe it's maybe to do with the cities and you know we live pretty pretty busy lives don't we these days i think people really struggle to find time to even go out for a cycle yeah they they, they struggle to find time to go for a, a go and do some sport with their friends you know many people are especially i think i think families with young children you know there's this <clears throat> pressure to get the kids out of the house in the morning and get them to breakfast club and get them to school and then the parents are off working and then the kids go to after school clubs and then the parents have to run and get them from after school but they've got to cook their tea and you know and then they've got to kind of get them ready for bed and, and by the time the day is done I think you're pretty whacked out aren't you and yeah and then the weekend is, is generally spent with a different kind of leisure time and not necessarily focusing on learning about plants I, I think there's some change going on. I've, I've definitely seen it online that more and more people seem to be becoming more fascinated with um, wild foods and just food systems, um, food systems as they are. I think, I think a lot of people are very wary of, or they're becoming more aware that our, our farming systems or our food systems are not as, maybe, maybe not as friendly as what they could be to, you know, climate change is, is kind of the topic, isn't it, as well? And, you know, farming is always mentioned within articles to do with climate change and sure. factory farming and quality standards and chemicals and additives and, and I think yeah, there's a lot of people are now kind of tapping back into so how, how can I become more self-sustaining how can I how can I have a, a, a positive impact somewhere regarding the changes that I make in my life and I think a lot of people seem to be looking at foods how can I how can I make a positive change through my food choices? Do I really want to buy that herb that's been flown in from, say, Ethiopia? You know, why, why have we got time in the wintertime that's flown in from Ethiopia? And yet at the same time, they have growing living pots that have been grown in Worcester. I just, I just, it just makes no sense yeah. to me at yeah. all. That. So, yeah. When it comes to um, foraging, I, I guess one of the things that might put some people off are the environmental hurdles that you might have to go through so for instance you know picking nettles you could potentially get get stung um <laughs> you know plants might be by a roadside are they taking in pollution from the cars mm -hmm. uh, as a dog walked by by and had a pee on the plant that you're about to pick how do you actually sort of like try and mitigate for those kind of things how can you um, help try and get around them then is, is there some way of, of, of trying to avoid those pitfalls yeah, I mean, when it comes to plants, plants at roadsides, I would 
say to people that don't pick plants from next to very, very, very busy roads, so your A roads, um, and also certain commuter routes, you'll find, especially at rush hour, you'll, you'll notice where um, congestion is, you know, where traffic sits for quite a period of time, spitting fumes out. You don't need to pick from those places. You can do. I think, if I remember rightly, there's a, there's a chap over in America um, called Philip Stark. Um, I forget which university he works for now. It might be the university. I think it's Berkeley. But he runs a project called Berkeley Open Source, Berkeley Open Source Food. He was involved in a, a study um, of a, a, a former industrial Dockland area somewhere over in the United States. I think, I think maybe it was on the East Coast somewhere. And it was really interesting. Um, and this was a couple of years ago, that the data that was found within that research was that plants actually weren't drawing up a lot of toxins into them. Um, and if any toxins were present, potentially they were on the outside of the leaves. So again, giving these plants a good wash is a really, really, you know, a, a really good way to, to, to go about treating those foods. But even, you know, your salads in your supermarkets, the amount of chemicals and sprays that are going on inferiorly produced foods for, for our daily um, for as, a, as a daily occurrence you know they recommend give them a wash people seem to be quite happy to buy a salad that's been sprayed in god knows what pesticides and herbicides and insecticides give it a wash and consume it it, it seems to be very similar for, for plants now I, I know that I've, I've heard on the grapevine that nettles in particular if they are growing on say like an old petrol station or an old industrial site that's full of toxins that they can take up through their root system and you should avoid picking those nettles mm. but i would just avoid picking anything on a former petrol station <laughs> site or a former industrial site there is there is enough green space out there for people to go out and pick things in their parks and you know with regards to to, to, to dog wee, you'll generally find that with your parks there are certain areas where you've got an allocated car park and that's where everybody congregates to start off with and usually the dog jumps out of the car and it's blood is bursting you know so it's going to find the nearest tree possible so if 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 you if you you know just entering a park and probably for the first hundred meters or so you'll notice that a lot of the the green plants by the base of trees are really they're a lot bigger and greener yeah. and bushier that's usually because they're kind of feeding off of all the the nitrates and other yeah. chemicals that they can process from dogweed. Um, so again, you know, we've, we've got grass verges. Don't pick right at the edge of a, of a verge or right at the front of a hedgerow. Step into it, you know, take a yeah. step in by a footstep or, or lean across and, and pick something and think about doggy height. Mm. Um, if you're picking wild foods first thing on a morning and you know that it's been dry as it has recently and you come to a plant and there's, you know, there's a, it looks wet in a particular patch. Don't pick that particular patch. You know, it's probably it's probably a dog, a dog walk, or maybe a joggers weed. No, I don't know. Um, but usually, the washing of things, you know, a, a good wash, and, and if you're cooking things, it's gonna, you know, you take things over a certain heat temperature, and it's gonna kill bacteria off anyway. So, um, but yeah, so yeah, roadsides definitely. I'd avoid roadsides. I would um, avoid old industrial areas, industrial units per se especially for your greens and particularly for mushrooms as well you know you don't want to be picking wild mushrooms from busy roadsides or within the the, the confines of a of a busy roadside area or a, a toxic side they're, they're pretty notorious some of the species for 
absorbing heavy metals and other nasty toxins which you will then consume um, but again this is about research I think plants different plants respond and react to different environmental factors compared to other ones so again just having these books and, and anything now you can contact somebody and check it out but yeah. to alleviate fears really I'd say to people don't worry about it too much I think there's a bit of over worry goes on with regards to that yeah. especially in light of what they were generally putting into their bodies anyway processed foods irradiated foods it's yeah, yeah, we just need to educate people more, I think. Yeah. When it comes to education, you do your, your lovely walks out with people. What would somebody be able to expect if they booked you for a, for a wild foraging session? Then what kind of thing, how, what's the structure of a, of, of a walk with Craig? Well, that's a good one. I'm going to be careful of a word. It's not going to be too big-headed and egotistical. I'm amazing, I am. Um, so now, um, I mean, generally when I meet up with people is a, an introduction. And um, we go around the group, get everyone to introduce themselves, um, maybe a few questions as to you know what they may be expecting from the day. And then depending on what season it is, what I like to do, I don't want to overload people too much. There are I've seen people in the past kind of like advertising courses saying, like, yeah, come out and I can teach you like 40 or 50 plants in three hours. To be honest with you, you'd be lucky if you remember even three of them. You know, it's just information overload. Um, so I like to start off with um Obviously, seasonal things, things that I really like to you to, to, to eat, pick and eat and play with. Um, versatile plants as well. So, you know, things like wild garlic. There are so many things you can do with wild garlic. It's, 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 it's a brilliant plant. I look at ease of identification regarding some of those plants as well. Um, yeah, we, we just have a, a lovely time. We have lots of chit-chats about plants and land and philosophies and, you know, yeah, I suppose food systems and we have gentle breaks in between there where I'll, I'll bring out some wild cake and some wild drinks and I'll have wild preserves and other things. And then the end of the session really is, is, is settling down with the things that we've, we've gathered that day. Um, obviously, we, we, we have chats about mindful foraging, mindful harvesting, you know, not taking too much that these resources that we're picking we share with a much wider audience you know and the insects and mammals some of that also needs to break down and be recycled and, and create new soils as well for for future plant generations um, and again the end of the session is really just sitting down and having a having some good food and some good drinking conversation a beautiful setting really so um yeah it's, it's a good experience i mean it's it's, it's so it's tricky chatting about the full experience because i suppose maybe it's like this podcast that we're doing we'll we'll chat about things but actually yeah we could we could kind of take it off on lots of tangents and I, and I find that on my courses you know people will, will ask some really random questions I've, I've never thought of before so to speak and then this conversation ensues and people chip in and I'm always aware of time I don't let things go on for too long and detract too too far from, yeah. from the, the focus of the day yeah, it's, it's, it's a lovely, it's, it's a lovely thing to do. Really. Okay, fantastic. So just to wrap up then, is there sort of like one book that you'd recommend for people who are first starting out? And if they wanted to find out more information about what you do, where should mm -hmm. people go? I mean, books wise, so I, I get this question a lot from people. Um, no one book will do you. You need several books, I would say. Um, but some of the, I've actually recently done a, a post on my Instagram account. Um, I think I've also popped it onto my Edible Leads Facebook page, and I've got a list of seven books on there. Um, there's a lots more books that you could tap into, but they're kind of probably seven of the 
how do I put it, really accessible, digestible books um, in, in different formats as well. You know, they, 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 they differ slightly with their information. Some go more into some traditional medicinal applications. Other ones chat more about recipes. Certain other books go a little bit more into the identification features of those plants. And then there's a book on seaweeds that I've thrown in there because I think people really need to be tapping into marine algae seaweeds is a, a really, really exciting um, yeah, organism. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I, I will name a couple of books. Um, I started off with Richard Mabby, Food for Free. I think that was first published in around about 1972, 73. It was quite a, revolu a revolutionary book uh, at the time. But it's become kind of a, I suppose, a bit of a classic. I think everybody who's into foraging has got a, has got a copy of Richard Mabby somewhere. And they, they come in various sizes. They've even got like a pocket size edition that you can just carry around. And it's, it's a really lovely book. But I would always recommend that that is used in tandem with specific wild plant identification guides. So wild flowers of the UK and trees of the UK. Another really lovely book to pop into that, which is not so much on the identification front, but particularly to do with recipes. And again, that will work in well in tandem with Richard Mabby's book and certain other plant ID books is Roger Phillips' Wild Food. It's just, again, it's one of those kind of cool classic books. And then other books I would heartily recommend um, is, is a really lovely book by Adele Nozadar called Hedro Handbook. That's just really lovely. That came along to me after a, a couple of years of foraging and um, yeah, I found that quite exciting at the time. And then a friend of mine, John Renston, um, he's published a book called The Edible City. Um, so he's based down in London and it's, uh, I think John describes it as a, as a coffee table book. It's something that you can dip into and dip out of every now and then it kind of covers seasonal stuff. Um, yeah, I probably should get a, a page on my website, to be honest with you, kind of detailing books. I, I never got into the big botanical reference books. I think like by Rosen, I think Stature or Stace or something. Um, and other well-known botanists, I just kind of hung out with these lesser-known books, in a sense. Right. Um, yeah. And then regarding myself and my courses, so I do have a website. Apologies to everybody that goes on it. I'm, I'm pretty notorious for not updating my website and getting content on there, but I am working on it. Um, but that's Edible Leads. So Edible is in, it's Edible, and then the City Leads. And I, I, I do pretty much daily and weekly postings on my Instagram account as well. And again, that's under edible.leads. My Facebook page is edible leads as well. Um, and then I do do, just do some pop-ups under the guise of the, the four wild seasons. So they're wild food dining events. Um, obviously with the current states of, of what's going on um, around the world, obviously all my courses are not going ahead at the moment and I'm certainly not doing any of my, my, my pop-up dinners, but once this is all over then, kind of focusing again on courses and pop-up dinners. In the meantime, I'm just trying to get some information out there and been putting some videos online just to help people ID plants, basically. It's just free information for people. So, yeah, get that wild, get a wild nutrition in you. Yeah, all right. Well, thanks, Craig. That's been fantastic. Yeah, lovely chatting with you. Thank you. Amazing. Cheers. Brilliant. Lovely. All the best to you. So that's it for this week's edition of the Nutrition Lab with me, James Ellis, dissecting all good things to eat and drink. Many thanks to Craig for joining us. We'll put some notes in the description of the podcast with the book titles that he mentioned and some pictures of the edible plants. So until next time, eat well and be happy.